Thank you for listening to the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I'm Molly Gamble, Vice President of Editorial, excited today to spend some time with my guest, Dr. Sachin Jain. Dr. Jain is President and CEO of Scan Group and Scan Health Plan, one of the nation's largest nonprofit Medicare Advantage plans serving more than 285,000 members across California, Nevada, Arizona, and Texas. Dr. Jain previously served as President and CEO of Caremore and Aspire Health, both subsidiaries of Anthem are now known as Elevance Health. Dr. Jane also served as Global Chief Medical Information Innovation Officer at Merck and spent time working for the Obama administration as Senior Advisor to Dr. Donald Berwick when he led CMS and as the first Deputy Director for Policy and Programs at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. Dr. Jane is also an adjunct professor at Stanford University's School of Medicine. Dr. Jane, welcome and thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you. What did I miss in your introduction, Dr. Jane? What didn't I touch on that listeners should, should know about you? Uh, that I'm a mediocre tennis player, that I'm a lifelong aquarium uh, hobbyist, uh, uh, just raised a great brood of angelfish, uh, and uh, that I'm revisiting uh, the piano as an adult and really loving it. So um, that's, that's some of my my high level. What's not on your What's not in your bio? <laughs> sure, sure. Well, I am an admirer of your time management. After all of that, so um, I'm so pleased to get some time with you today, given how much national attention Medicare Advantage has really commanded as of late, and for good reason. And the enrollment surpassed traditional Medicare for the first time in the program's history. There's slightly more than 30 million people enrolled in MA in January compared to just under 30 million enrolled in traditional Medicare. What's the biggest story behind that statistic from where you stand? Um, from where I stand, you know, the, the issue is that I think the people have spoken. Um, I think this is a very, very popular program um, in part because it actually does more for um, older adults than traditional Medicare. Uh, take traditional Medicare and um, look at the vision benefits, look at the dental benefits, um, look at the um, audiology benefits. Um, you'd actually have to bring a microscope to, to see those benefits, and you'd actually not find anything. Um, because, you know, according to traditional fee-for-service Medicare, um, most older adults don't have teeth, eyes, or ears um, because we don't have benefits for, you know, for dental, for vision, or, or audiology. That's something that uh, Medicare Advantage plans uh, very often actually provide as part of their, their plan offerings. Um, and you know, it goes back to the roots of Medicare Advantage and why it was created. It was created to be able to drive innovation that like, couldn't necessarily happen um, you know, in traditional Medicare uh, and take some of the plan design out of the hands of, of CMS and the folks that, you know, good folks in, in Baltimore and put it in the hands of um, you know people who operated plans. Um, you know, I think that there have been some you know challenges with the administration of the program. It's obviously a growing and changing program, um, but you know the reason that it's popular is because it actually does important things for for older adults. Um, so you know, I think that there's um, uh, you, you know kind of the, the the growth that we're experiencing is actually just you know kind of a, a natural extension of uh, some of the features of the program. Can I level with you for a moment, Dr. Jane? I, I, I'm 35 years old, so I'm still a ways out from Medicare eligibility. I imagine that when that time would, were to arrive, I would want a plan that accounts for my eyes, ears, and teeth. Um, 
I also grew up professionally covering the provider space of so hospitals and health systems. And sometimes I'm not quite sure what to make of MA or, or how I think about it. Uh, it seems like two things are happening at the same time where it's a very popular program, like you just said, it serves a good number of low income people. It's shown to be able to provide better care than the traditional option. At the same time, a lot of headlines and attention paid toward MA plans facing charges of defrauding CMS and taxpayers by billions of dollars, that money going back to private insurers' profits. Is this an accurate state of affairs? What would you challenge and, and what perhaps would you add or what am I missing? Well, it's still a relatively new program. And I would say, um, you know, as recently as 2010, 2011, when I worked at CMS, it was really seen as a stepchild. And I don't think we've actually necessarily paid enough attention to the program to um, actually regulate it in the way that it, it needs to be regulated. We need to modernize our approach to risk adjustment, um, modernize our approach to addressing fraud, waste, and abuse, um, modernize our approach to, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, setting base rates and payments. Um, none of that has actually happened. And, um, you know, we're still kind of, uh, you know, stuck in this HCC world. You know, the star rating system has evolved and improved, but I think there's opportunities to make it even better. Um, and, and again, I think when you launch a program as significant as the Medicare Advantage program, um, there are always going to be unintended consequences. There's always going to be implementation failures. Um, there's always going to be, I think, challenges. And I think we need to more aggressively manage, um, you know, the implementation of the program. The, the problem with it and the reason why I think it's been hard for regulators to, to actually address it is because it's become so big and because so many, you know, entrenched stakeholders kind of rely on the program and its status quo um, to, to, you know, perpetuate themselves. Um, but I think as CMS has done many times before, uh, it, it needs to take a hard look at the program, its implementation, um, and, you know, modernize it for the year 2023. I look at something like risk adjustment, which has gotten so much attention. And I think, you know, why aren't we just ingesting the electronic health records that now are you know, used by most doctors and, and actually reward real risk as opposed to expected risk. And so, again, I think there's a lot of things that we can start to do to make the program better. But, you know, one of the things that gets lost when people start taking a hard look at, at Medicare Advantage, and it's appropriate to take a hard look at Medicare Advantage, is to also just look at the alternative and the fee-for-service program. And you're talking about, you know, yourself at age 35 and 30 years. You know, the Medicare Advantage program provides a lot more security to people than traditional Medicare Traditional Medicare leaves you exposed for a lot of medical expenses and out-of-pocket expenditure, you know, in the traditional Medicare program is significantly higher for people than in the Medicare Advantage program. And so, you know, if you think about it as a part of our social safety net, our social security fabric, then, you know, again, I think it's a program that's still evolving that needs to be, I think, managed and changed to adapt with the times, but it is solving some problems that fee-for-service Medicare you know, frankly, leaves unaddressed. In 2010, if it was still, if MA was still seen as a stepchild, 2023, how would you characterize it today? Well, I think, it, you know, the stepchild is, is now kind of saying, you, got, you have to pay attention to me. Um, there's just some obvious things that we need to work on. And I would say, you know, this administration has been, I think, terrific at starting to take a look at um, some of the opportunities. But I think there's even more opportunity 
um, to, to reform the program. I mean, take, a, take for example, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, um, which I think has done a great job of putting health equity uh, to the forefront. But you know, there aren't that many MA-focused models coming out of CMMI. And I think there's opportunities to build uh, MA models focused on specific populations, MA, focused, uh, MA models focused on specific problems that need to be addressed within the MA program. Um, uh, and, and again, I, I think that's some of the opportunity is to continue to re reform and revise the program to meet the needs of you know, older adults today. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you brought up CMMI because you, you were at CMS in a really interesting time. You played a part in shaping healthcare policy, implementing value-based payment reforms. You've also been pretty critical about some of the toxic positivity, as you call it, around value-based care. I wanted to check in and get your perspective on what you would say or how you think the governmental health insurance programs, what do they get right? What do they perhaps do better than their private counterparts, if anything, and then vice versa? What, in what ways do the private plans, commercial plans, just have a, a bigger leg up on, on CMS right now? Look, I, I think it's I think it's comparing like pomegranates to mangoes. Um, uh, they're both good fruits. <laughs> they both uh, um, I think serve different uh, constituents. I think some people like pomegranates, some people like mangoes, um, and I think you know there there are good reasons to like both. Um, I, I think the bigger issue that we have to navigate, though, is that our health insurance system is built on a chassis that is now outdated, um, and that's the fee-for-service chassis. Um, and so I think for that reason, I think for years, people have been saying, oh, well, we need to move to, from, from volume to value. And um, you know, I was uh, involved in some of the early academic work in value-based care with, with Michael Porter and Elizabeth Teisberg. And... Um, you know, all the founding principles of the value-based care movement are the right principles. The, the issue, though, is that I think um, what we're not looking at is total health care spending. I think what we're doing, what we're talking about with most value-based care is shifting who the dollars go to. Um, you know, we're shifting dollars from insurance companies to provider groups, from provider groups to primary care doctors, primary care doctors to specialists. When people talk about value-based care and some of the opportunities and some of the potential, what they're really talking about is, is moving risk to kind of the more relevant unit, which is, a, of course, a great goal. The, the challenge, though, is that we're not necessarily having a national conversation about reducing total medical expense. And I think that's where it's really fallen short of its promise. Um, and that's where I think we do have a toxic positivity problem, uh, you know, where everyone says, you know, that value-based care will save the day, when in fact, you know, we have 18% of our GDP locked up in healthcare. Um, I think we should set as a federal target 15%. That's going to need to come from somewhere. And those savings that are, um, that we want, you know, to produce in value-based care need to accrue to the, you know, to, to society, uh, to employers, to, um, to CMS, as opposed to shifting the dollars from one set of stakeholders to another. And I think that's, that's really what I struggle with with value-based care is that in the real world of implementing it, um, I don't see that it's actually reduced total societal healthcare expenditure in any meaningful way. Maybe it's slowed the rate of increase. Um, but it has not done what it needs to do, which is actually reduce total healthcare expenditure for the country. And, and why do we need to do that? This is an issue of national competitiveness. Um, if, you know, 18 cents of every you know, of, of every, you know, goods or service produced in this country is going to um, healthcare, 
I don't think, you know, I think we're doing something wrong and we're making our products and our services less competitive in a global context where other countries are spending a fraction of that. Dr. Dan, I'm curious at your thoughts too, as everything you just described, inflation, are you hearing that more and more from colleagues as something that perpetuates and exacerbates everything you just described? Look, inflation is real and inflation is about prices, but what I'm really talking about is quantity. Um, you know, we're going to have, you know, fluctuations in prices based on macroeconomic forces that are, you know, out of the control of the healthcare system. But what we do control within the healthcare industry is the quantity of services consumed. And um, we have overutilization problems in healthcare for two reasons. One is, is that, um, you know, the system wants to feed itself. And so sometimes we, um, you know, charge for interventions and we deliver interventions that have little marginal benefit to uh, patients and or society. And so I think we need to look at, you know, some of what's happening there and decrease utilization. I would say the second category of utilization that is problematic is really um, unnecessary utilization that's driven by um, progression from, you know, uh, you know kind of uh, low level of acuity of chronic disease to higher level of acuity of chronic disease. Um, take diabetes, which is now, you know, an epidemic in our society. Um, so much, uh, uh, you know, of what happens to people with diabetes these days is that they, you know, their condition progresses. They develop heart disease. Uh, they develop, um, you know, uh, retinal disease. They develop, uh, you know, kidney disease, uh, neuropathy. Those are all preventable complications, and they arise not because we don't have the treatments to actually solve these problems, not because we don't have you know, the physicians and nurses to deliver the care to patients, they arise because we have an inadequate investment in primary care. We have no problem as a society paying, you know, high fees to di dialysis companies when patients, you know, uh, diabetes and hypertension uh, progresses to kidney failure. Um, but we do have a problem investing in primary care, uh, you know, so that we can avoid and obviate the need for uh, the dialysis in the first place. And so again, I, I go back to the original equation. Um, total healthcare expenditure is a function of price times volume. Um, you know, prices are going up. That's of course a, a problem that extends far beyond healthcare. But the volume of services problem has two real main subcomponents. One is uh, the issue around unnecessary utilization that is driven by you know low value interventions, and then the second is around um, our inadequate focus on you know upstream management and prevention of downstream complications. Um, you know, you mentioned social determinants of health. Uh, I'm personally now increasingly the opinion that the healthcare system needs to seed focus on social determinants of health to other sectors because we're still not doing a good job delivering healthcare. Why do people think we're gonna be good at delivering, you know, on, on all these other needs? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How recent is that opinion? Has it been more informed by the pandemic as of late or what gets you thinking that there needs to be more collaboration with the private sector here? Well, I just think that the issue is, is that I just see so many healthcare organizations, you know, kind of, I, I would say, engaging in hobbyist art mm -hmm. around, um, around social determinants of health. And it's a lot of virtue signaling and, you know, it's a lot of feel good messaging. But when you actually like double click on, you know, the actual utilization of some of these benefits that are provided, it's actually quite low. There's a big national health plan that, you know, provides coverage for pest control and insecticides in the home, which on the surface is, an, is a nice benefit. 
when you actually look at the true levels of utilization, um, they're actually quite low on a national basis. And, and so I think one of the, uh, you know, there's a big health system that has made a national name for itself by um, actually creating a, uh, you know, a fresh food farm uh, on its campus that delivers fresh food to people in the community. When you look at the, the fraction of people who are actually served, um, you know, in the community, it's actually very small. And, and, you know, then you look at some of the challenges we have with the delivery of healthcare. Uh, the fact that, you know, patients with new cancer diagnoses can't actually get access to an oncologist. Um, patients who are discharged from the hospital can't get timely follow-up with their primary care doctor. Um, and then you've got people like doing hobbyist work around fresh food farming and, and you know, God knows what else. Um, I think we need to get good at the basics of what we were intended to do um, before we start extending ourselves into, into these other areas and other domains. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about MA moving forward. Under its current growth, it's expected to hit 69% of Medicare enrollment by 2030. That comes with, I'm sure, some opportunities, also some risks. And specifically, I'm curious to get your thoughts on, you know, Dr. Jane, in, in light of the complicated political landscape you just mentioned, I'm curious how words and slogans and taglines and titles can really take on renewed importance in the way we talk about things and policy and political concepts and ideas. Do you think it's time that the slogan or title of Medicare for All be revisited? Is it not perhaps capturing the nuance that's needed to really drive how we think and talk about that policy change for health insurance forward? Yeah, I mean, look, I think, you know, Medicare for all is, is, has got um, a lot of potential virtues and benefits associated with it. Um, I've actually advocated for a slight variation on it, which is Medicare Advantage for all, which I think will be a uniquely American solution. I think, I, I think most of the American public believes in the idea of universal coverage, but I don't think they believe in the idea of a, of a you know, uh, of a program that's administer, administered and administrated entirely by the federal government. And so I like the idea of the federal government delegating um, you know, administration of the Medicare Advantage program or the Medicare program to not-for-profit and for-profit entities um, and setting them up to uh, compete against each other uh, and through competition imp- you know, improve the quality and value of services delivered to, um, to the American public. Uh, you know, what I think you potentially miss out on by having Medicare for all is, you know, acknowledge, not necessarily acknowledging the slow pace of change. Um, you know, when you think of what Medicare actually covers and the benefits package, which, you know, as we talked about before, is quite meager, um, you know, to, in, in 2023, um, Medicare does not acknowledge that you actually have teeth and need a dental benefit. Um, and, you know, if you actually look back, you know, as recently as 2004, we actually didn't even have coverage for prescription drugs. Um, so that tells you a bit about, you know, kind of some of the pitfalls of potentially putting, you know, administration of a healthcare program fully in the hands of a, uh, a well-meaning but slow-moving federal bureaucracy that literally requires acts of Congress to, you know, create, you know, meaningful and important change. And we all know that the pace of science um, far outstrips the pace of you know, uh, of legislation in this country, particularly in a politically charged and complicated environment like the one we have right now, um, where it's hard to get anything done. It's hard to see 
deferring medical coverage and policy decisions to the federal government as uh, exclusively to the federal government as being you know, kind of the, the best thing for the country. So um, I, again, I think at various points in my career, I've said Medicare for all would be a great idea. But what I will tell you is it's, it's, it's the question is, is how do you do it? How does it get administered? And how do you safeguard against some of the potential I think, risks associated with doing that? Mm-hmm. And in a politically charged, complicated environment, like you said, language can even carry more weight. Um, slogans, titles, how things are packaged, what we call them. Do you think it's time that the effort that's been slugged Medicare for all for so long, do you think it's time we have a bit more nuance around that as people talk about it and as people have come to understand it, even though, as you just alluded to, um, the environment's really changed in the past several years since this effort was you know, last revisited? Yeah, I think, I think the hardest part is that like this is all very complicated and i think you know it's complicated for people who've worked in the industry for as long as i have and and i think we've in some ways overcomplicated it um i think we need to simplify the dialogue around this and um and i think we need to kind of really categorize our problems into three major categories you know i think um it's access issues i think it's quality issues um and then i think it's cost issues uh, I think those are the three main pillars of issues that we need to solve. Um, and then I think we need to have a national dialogue about how best to solve them. That's a little bit unemotional um, and removed from some of the, I think, politically charged dialogue that that these topics sometimes take on. Um, you know, easier said than done. Um, but you know, these are these are matters of I think good policy, not necessarily good politics. And we should be looking at a society as a society at you know how to make sure that people are getting less of the wrong care and more of the right care um, and m- make this much more about health care uh, and make it far less about you know I think the kinds of things people you know make it about, which is like is health care a right or a privilege or you know um, you know the my body my choice stuff, uh, which I think ends up being you know distracting um, you know not that they're not important. But I think, you know, the issues get a a bit complicated um, as it relates to the administration of these programs, Um, you know, because, again, you can kind of completely distract dialogue from healthcare by just focusing on one issue, um, like access to reproductive rights. Um, And then, you know, we don't actually end up advancing the overall conversation. Um, So, again, I think we need a more, a less emotional national conversation, which just focuses on the facts. Facts are we spend more in, on healthcare in the U.S. than anyone else does in any other, you know, like country. Um, fact is that you know our outcomes are not uh, are not aligned with how much we actually spend. Fact is that healthcare is big business, and maybe it shouldn't be, um, and maybe it should be a smaller business. Um, and then the fact is, is how do we actually get there? And I think the biggest obstacle is that we have too many incumbents that do too well. On the current system, you know, the reason we have the system that we have isn't because people don't know that we should have a better system. It's because you can be very profitable and financially successful in American healthcare today while also not being very good, and that's the fundamental defect and underlying problem. I, I do think more people know that now than they did 20 years ago when we had when we kind of just assumed American healthcare was great in its existing form. Um, and so I think we do have more with that greater national understanding. We're going to be able to have a more sophisticated dialogue that's going to get us, you know, closer to where we need to be. 
Simplified conversation and dialogue around access, quality, and cost with, like you said, a, a bit more cool and level-headedness, Dr. Jane. It, I so appreciate and enjoyed this conversation. Is as we wind down, is there anything we didn't touch on that you want to make sure you mention? Um, no, I think it was a great conversation. I really appreciate the opportunity.